Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, pod people. I'm Lior Phillips, and you're listening to This Must Be the Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music. Every single week, we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this gigantic, big, spongy globe. We talk passion. We talk first concerts, insights into the creative mind during this truly unusual time and everything in the Juicy Center. I'm here with Engineer Adam today. Hello. As always. Hello. As every day. Hello. And I'm really honored to be sharing this week's conversation, somebody that I've long been absolutely fascinated by, the actor, the filmmaker, the musician, and the fearless activist, Rose McGowan. Here's my gift to the world for going through all that hard crap with me. I appreciate it. Rose was once primarily known for roles in films and TV shows like Scream and Jawbreaker and Charmed, but her life has been dedicated more recently to bringing Harvey Weinstein and other abusers to light and to justice, which is just such an important quest, something that is so needed in the world today and something she faces with this incredible, boundless energy. Yeah, and most recently, she also turned some of that passion towards making music, namely the new album Planet Nine. And Rose envisioned this alternate planet when she was a child, known as Planet Nine, and has shared this album encapsulating the feeling of hope that she gets from it and from making music, uh, also escape, and that light for herself and for listeners as a comfort, as a solace, as a respite. And gosh, I'm so grateful that she spoke to me stealing somebody's Wi-Fi. Uh, (laughs) She's hungered down in Mexico right now. And she's stealing her neighbor's Wi-Fi, so I can't believe we even got this chat. And the audio sounds great. Everybody's Wi-Fi deserves to be stolen because Wi-Fi should be free. And also in this chat, I spoke with Rose about what it took to bring Planet Nine to life, taking on abusers and speaking your mind on such a public platform, using music as mind medicine, and so much more. So let us not be delayed. This is me and Rose McGowan. 
enjoy and please take care of yourselves look out for others and be kind
everyone has individual trauma, right? That's walking around in the world. Uh, everyone's got their own story. Everyone's carrying their own pain. But then there's also this collective trauma going on right now. And that's something that's so hard to grapple with because, you know, we've never had to do this before. We weren't alive during the plague. We weren't alive during yellow fever. We weren't alive, you know, this is what we're alive in. And we're in a historical moment. And I just thought it was only two weeks ago that I decided to release Planet Nine. Um, I didn't have any release strategy. I just all of a sudden thought was like, you know what? I know you're supposed to release an album with months in advance and all the press and do everything. But if I can get this out to people and then they can pass it around by word of mouth, I know this will help people's trauma. It will give them a 38 minute release to go on a, an inner journey and travel inside when they can't travel outside and just make things just for that 38 minutes, like to soothe, to soothe, like, you know, traumatized people really. And it's really beautiful. And it's got some bang, it's got some bangers on it too, but it's really like, you can move to it. You can do anything to it. But the first time I suggest that people listen, cause it's a concept album. It's not meant to be skipped around. You can afterwards, you can do whatever you want. But initially, it's really meant to be listened to as a whole body of work because that's what I did. And it's, an, it's a, not a common way of doing it anymore. Most people just put a bunch of songs on and see what, what's going to pop as a single. And that's not, really, that's not my approach um, because this album is not about me trying to um, – I'm not trying to be a pop star. I'm not going to perform this. Um, I did at the Fringe Festival in August. I did it like a beta version of, of – and then I realized, I was like, I'm getting in the way of my own art. I don't like this. I didn't, I just, I, I was kind of jealous of the audience because I wanted to just be sitting in their chair and watching the visuals on the huge screen and listening right. to the sound without having to be the one actually doing it. Mm. And I was like, I, if, if I'm standing here, people are staring at me and not listening to the words or seeing the visuals. And I just, I don't need to be stared at. I've done that enough in my life. So what what about the release strategy? Well, lack you know there wasn't really one. What about that helped yeah. you? How was that you know healing for you to just put something out? Because you're speaking now about the you know effects and impact it can have on a listener, but I'm curious to see how it's actually helped you relieve some of that um, maybe potential. I don't know. There's a little bit of. There's a little bit of agony in how a cycle usually rolls out, right? It's the same with a movie. It's the same with TV and anything. There's there's a cycle to it. So you stripped that away. So it's how, a birth cycle. Right, right. So yeah, how was yeah. that for I, you? Well, I'd also never had it. I, I'd never had the cycle with an album because I haven't done this before. I'd never produced an album. I'd never, like, I sang on, like, a few songs on soundtracks. Ironically, the soundtrack that I'm on that I sang a couple songs on is called Planet Terror. Right. I didn't even realize that till the other night. I was like, wait a second. The other album on Spotify is Planet right. Terror. And now I have Planet Nine, which is all about healing. It's so funny. So now, you know, one of the things was um, I support uh, 20%. If you buy the album on bandcamp.com, if you just go to my website, rosemagallon.com, there's all the info. I'm saying it's going to COVID relief, 20% of it. But really, I'm, I'm funneling it specifically. It is COVID relief. It's critical suffering uh, with domestic violence, children and women and men and anybody who needs to get out. So I work with some really like boots on the ground organizations, not big ones, like little local ones. And I work a lot with the East Los Angeles Women's Center. And right now with just the $1,500 I made in the first day of sales on Bandcamp, I'm housing four women who just escaped from their abusers and their three children and they have wow. an apartment for this month. Oh my so gosh. So that, that's why. 
that's why. And it's also just because it's, it is for collective healing and also just for good times. And it's, it's just, there's some jams on there. And it's, it, I really strongly believe that this is a great album and it's weird. And I'm saying that not as the person who made it, I'm saying it because when I make things, I'm like, Whoa, where does that come from? And I really just feel like I'm just this conduit. I know that sounds like hippie, but when I wrote lonely house, I had, it just poured out and it's a seven and a half minute spoken word track over this operatic space beat. And I was like, who did, where did that come from? And I'll look at stuff I wrote and I'm like, I didn't even know I had that in my head. So it's not even like it's planned. And so it's weird. I can talk about my work in a way that's not, when I say something, I think something's great. I've also done things that I know are not great. But when I did something great, I know when it's great. Yeah, there's no shame or... And people, and you know, women, women don't ever, women, women aren't expected to ever say, you know what, this is amazing. I did it. I nailed it. Yeah, of course. Women aren't expected to say that. Men can say it and they can brag. Yeah. My ex is always like, you need to be more humble. I'm like, I just said that I'm really proud of my film that I directed. Mm. That's not, that's like, don't tell me to be more humble. Like you wouldn't, if a man just sat here and said, I'm really proud of the film I directed, which means I'm proud of the crew. I'm proud of the cinematographer. I'm proud of the actors. I'm proud of the sound design. I'm proud of, I'm proud of everybody involved. I'm proud of this film. And I think it's really okay for women to start being like, you know what? Yeah, this rocks. Yeah. And there's also something in the idea that humility is always translated into like aggression or, I mean, not humility, but courage. It's always translated into aggression or like intensity. Like, I don't know. Like, I get, you know, there's, I don't know about you, but like all my life, everyone, every man has always called me intense. Like their, their way yeah. to call me oh, yeah. out. It's always been like, you're so intense. And I know right. that's you know, not intense. What do you say back to them? Well, I know it's not intensity. Yeah, it's passion. It's, it's fucking passion. passion. It's exactly. It's passion, stupid. I'm sorry you don't have any. It's not my issue. <laughs> right. I remember on the schoolyard, an 11-year-old girl came up to me. I was 11, too. And she goes, my friend and I want to be friends with you, but you're intimidating. Oh. And I just looked at her, and I, just, I looked at her, and I paused, and I said, that's not my issue. It's not my problem. Right. It's your perception I'm not too intimidating. Exactly. You're too scared. Right. Well, and I also had someone, these people around me the other day, and they kept saying, they were kind of annoying me, and they kept going, you know so much. Shh, Pearl, stop barking. My dog. You know so much. And finally, I turned to them, and I was like, you know so little. It's not me. It's you. Right. And there's definitely... Anybody a... can know so much. Right. But they put it on you as if you're the freak. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm again, like, I'm that's not the freak. It's insecurities. you. I think watching somebody play out a fantasy or a life that you want is unbelievably traumatic for somebody. So when somebody gets face to face with someone like you or an incredibly strong person, it all it does is it mirrors back the issues that they haven't looked at, right? So it's like an unbelievably telling moment. That's why people can't handle passion or they, you know, men can't handle courage and bravery because it's yeah. women too. Women yeah. too. You know, I'll tell you, I have, you know, Twitter's like the great cesspool, but you can oh, certainly God. tell what the general thoughts are of, of uh, both women and men because they used to have a metric system in Hollywood before um, the internet came along. And it, the way they measured fan bases was like if you got one fan mail, piece of fan mail, they equal 5,000 fans. And so that means 5,000 people like you or think like you. So basically, if I get one Twitter message from someone that says something nasty or says what we're just talking about, um, 
I can equate that with 5,000 people that are like them. And each of those 5,000 have 5,000 other people like them, but you can also convert that to good. So that was kind of like with planet nine. I was like, if I, this works for me, I know it'll work for 5,000 other people and so on. But what I've really noticed is it's not just men. It's, it's really, it's, it's like women uphold that paradigm. Women uphold the toxicity. Like I, I, I'm speaking the truth here. Like women have been like nightmares. And a lot of it is because they're just not, I mean, they're told from, you know, when kids, it's usually around age four or five, when they start going to school and they get told, I missed that part. I had a break from that. I didn't get it till I was 10, but that's when I was told I was a boy or a girl. I mean, you know, and most of the time, most of, wait, oh, most, sorry, I'm looking for my dog. Most of the time they're scared. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just searching for my dog because she's, She's about to run out an open door. Um, oh, no. So, no, don't worry. Um, I got her. Yay, Pearl. I got <laughs> Where is she uh, going? support dog. I got, oh. Pearl's just an investigator. Yeah, and she, it's amazing because I'd always had rescue dogs, and they were amazing too, but they had so much trauma, mm. right? Um, and it was always, it was me doing a lot of, it took it's a lot. The ones I had were really hard cases. And when I, the last one got fostered out, Finally, um, after like five years of recovering it from being a feral hoarding situation, um, I met this therapist in New York and she's like, you should get a dog with no trauma, get a puppy with no trauma and it will, it will take yours. And it's worked. I have had really bad nightmares, you know, from Weinstein for like 22 years, like two to three times a night, I wake up sweating and and having to change my clothes and just interrupted sleep patterns. And, you know, you wake up with your heart racing and, and, um, and then my nightmares have gone away by like 85% since I've had her. It's wild. I didn't know. I had no idea it would work. Oh my God. It's true. (sighs) I watched Pearl, my dog and I watched her and she's like six months old now. And I I watch her and she taught me so much already. And I'm like, Oh "Oh my God, that is (laughs) what if if all of us, (laughs) hadn't been messed with i know this is what we would be like we would she's just one ball of love she loves getting love she loves giving love and that's and it's just free and happy and if you like raise your hand just because that's how you test you know if the dog's been abused or not you just pull your hand up kind of over its head and if they shrink you know and, and she just stares at you there's no i did it once to test just in case there's nothing, not like you're going to hit them. Um, and it's just, I'm like, whoa, that's what we're all supposed to be like. If we've been free to just live as we were supposed to, if we'd never been hurt, I mean, life has hurts in it, but like the original trauma stuff, like the parent stuff, the family stuff, people telling you you're nothing or you're this or that. And I'm like, then they send us out in these straight jackets of masculinity or femininity, both toxic. And then they're like, have a good life. Spend the rest of your life unpacking this and getting out of your straight jacket. Have fun. And um, so I've learned a lot from her, yeah. And it's been great having a quarantine buddy. Oh, I'm sure. And especially like that, there's, there's, it's like the man, how mundane the certain tasks are in terms of caring for an animal. I think is, it's like why people turn to paint. It's why people turn to music. It's like those little pieces of crafting. It's actually, it's so therapeutic, like gardening or whatever, cooking, baking, those little things like use, it taps into the part of your brain that's really calming. I find again, exactly. Like, I don't yeah. know if, that, if yeah. you feel the same and that's always just so, Oh my God, there's nothing better than animals. I'm sorry. And you're also <laughs> a service. Say. You're also getting out of your own head and taking care of something. that's not about you. 
which I think, especially when it comes to trauma, oh, 100%, of course. Because trauma, as you said, it is a straitjacket. You, you have to, you, you're trying to rid yourself of the things that other people inflicted on you, whilst also trying yeah. to get through your own shit. It's like, it's setting you up to yeah. fail. So what, so about all the, you know, the last few years for you have been unbelievably gigantic. So <laughs> <laughs> the best years of your life. Well, what people didn't know is that, uh, so Planet Nine, my album, is the second half of Brave, my book that I wrote. Right, I, re- right. I did them simultaneously. It took me like three years to write Brave, and it took me, I worked on the album for about two and a half years, and then longer after that, getting the post-production done. Mm-hmm. But I did it while dealing with everything you guys saw in the public, starting, you know, the expose articles in the New York Times and the New Yorker came out in 2017, in, in October 2017. But for three years behind the scenes, I've been dealing with just unimaginable craziness with them trying to shut down my book and Weinstein being after me and hiring, you know, the Mossad, which is a spy agency that staffs, uh, when they're done, often those spies that were with the Mossad, which is like CIA, but kind of like gnarlier. Um, they, they, um, they were doing, they were flying drones behind my windows. They stole my headlights out of my car, placed a tracker in my car. There were, there were recording devices found in my house, bugs, you know, things like that. And I was exhausted when those articles came out. I had been being so terrorized. Like I had cars following me everywhere, black SUVs sitting outside of my house, just like we're watching, we're on you. And if you read Ronan Farrow, the journalist mm. book, Catch and Kill, you can, you can, it details a lot of the stuff, but I was exhausted when those articles came out. So it's been years of and then years before that of, of just trauma in Hollywood. So it's just, it's just, I've had my fill, really. I've, I've really quite hit the mother load of that stuff, I think. But you I'm didn't like, thanks. Stop. I'm yeah. gone with you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm with you. But I'm with what, what helped yeah. me to, but I really believe the only reason I survived um, with my mind, because most people that do what I do, like to that level and go up against the machine that hard and have that many forces coming at you that people don't even know about, like the power levels. Like, it was Hillary Clinton's spokesperson that helped get the NBC article shut down. Like, her spokesperson called and leaned on them. And it was just, like, the power people behind that were coming for me. People don't survive that easily. And then they name a street after you. I don't want a street named after me, especially not in America. No. And no. I, I would rather survive it. But Planet Nine making that is what helped me survive. And, and I did it, you know. I did it, like, very much... With you know, and I had to wait because I remember wanting to make an album, and then Lindsay Lohan came out with an album a long time ago, and I was like, right around the same time I wanted to make one, and I was like, God damn it! Because I realized that when you're just an actress, no, I just didn't. My work would be lumped in with that kind of stuff, and it wouldn't be taken seriously. And I'm very serious about my work. Um, I work with very, very masterful people. And I expect a lot out of myself and them. And I, and I like things done, like the movie I directed, like the book I wrote, to a very high-quality standard. And um, not saying Lindsay Lohan's is not a high-quality standard. I'm just saying everyone laughed at her when her album came out. I don't know whether it was good or not. I never heard it. But if I had come out with Planet Nine at then, can you imagine anybody being awake enough to receive it? No. It would have just been written off. So I had to kind of break a lot of constructs, get free of Hollywood and be like, here's a cultural reset. It's not about me too for me. I was always like literally six years ago sitting on my couch smoking a joint. And I was like, 
I wonder if I can cause a massive cultural reset. That's what I want to do. We need like, we need an explosion. Like when I was cleaning my closet and I was like, when you clean your closet, you make a huge mess, but then it gets clean. And that's kind of like what we as a society needed to go through because there was such a huge amount of toxicity and lies about this stuff. And what Tarana Burke did in creating the hashtag Me Too, which the media called a movement, which is like, no, I was the movement. Um, other people that were like, we're not going to take this anymore were the movement. Me Too is a communication tool. And by creating that hashtag, she did, like, you can sit down next to someone at dinner and be like, Me Too, you, Me Too, and know what you're talking about. And, and survivors and victims never had a commonality or a language. Everyone thinks they have to unload their deepest, darkest shame. But just by saying, I'm Me Too, you know what they're talking about. And that's a hugely freeing thing, but that's been really distorted by, uh, you know, American media, no offense, is really fucking dumb. Like the dumbest I've dealt with. I mean, it, I'm not over gonna take and over offense. and over. I'm not going to take you're offense. Not, you're, not, you're not American. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So good for you. You're like, no thanks. But well, it's, it's shocking. It's and they keep, they keep yeah. the people there. So it's, it's, it's not just ruthless. It's, it's willfully obtuse. It's willfully stupid and willfully rude and dismissive of anybody doing anything different and who's not going along with the status quo, which is me, in every possible way. And I fundamentally disagree with America. I disagree with its politics. I disagree with its uh, cult-like mentality. I disagree with a lot of stuff about it. And so I just don't live there anymore because I just figured I've done my time. That's the best I can do for myself is just leave. So when you were looking for identifiers, like when you were younger, when you didn't have much to draw on, there was just all the shit happening to you and everything just, you know, the constant pressure, the constant uh, spotlight. What did you what did you turn to as that identifier when you didn't have that movement to back you or that, you know, you didn't no have one backed support? Me. No one backed me. No one backed me. I had support, for, I had support from the people that no one fancy. I had support from myself because you know what, from the very beginning in my entire life, because I had a, a tricky life before Hollywood, you know, people in Hollywood, the people, the journalists would be like, is this the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? I'm like, not really. Yeah. But it was always me. Like when I was little, I was like, it's not me, it's you. And you're all, everybody seemed really dedicated to making me think that I was the crazy one. And I was like, no, you're just doing that so you can be comfortable because I don't look like your idea of what. You know, I came from Italy at 10, not speaking English. They put me in a military school. I'd grown up in a hippie commune in Italy. And that was like an overnight transition. And I, and they were so in the military school obsessed with making me like them. And I was like, I was like, why would you do that? This is just for your comfort. I'm cool. You're, I don't want to be like you. I don't like your shoes. I don't like how you talk. I don't like your education system. Um, from what I could see, it, it really, it's around four and five in America and, and most places, I guess when you start realizing you're a boy or a girl and then they tell you what race you are. And now you're in the straight jacket that you have to fix and get out of for the rest of your life and unpack. They give you stuff to unpack. I was lucky I was 10 before anyone told me or drilled in that I was a girl. Um, it wasn't a thing in the commune that I was raised in. Um, that was not, it was, they were trying to, trying to raise the kids. They were utopians. And my father was the leader of this group and they were trying to raise the children. And they did, you know, to an extent until things got too weird and we had to escape. They raised us as, what if these kids were like super minds and not an outside self? What if we didn't tell them they were a boy or a girl or drilled at home, the differences and what you can and can't do? What if we just let them be super minds, highly educated, hyper-educated? And then I got sent to America where they were like, see Dick run, see Jane play with the dog. And I'm like, oh my God, I was reading Edgar Allan Poe, what is going on here? I know what I am. I know I'm not. And 
saying it till the cows come home. I had a lot of interviewers who were like, do you feel vindication now that people believe you? And I'm like, I don't care. My issue was if they believe me or not. I know the truth. I was there. The question of asking if you feel vindicated is really, I think, um, it's also misleading. It's to try and coax an idea out of you that is going to break that sh- and shake that core of who you are. It's really just trying to exactly. see if there's any cracks in your statement, which is, again, something that I think people have done to you for a very long time. Even the roles you chose at the time. I mean, you look at like some well, of those movies. Well, it was movies. chose and choice. Like, yeah, I had been, exactly. been blacklisted, so I didn't have a choice. Right. Was that from, from right from the beginning? No, for, that was like at about three movies in. I was in the middle of my third movie for Weinstein's company when he assaulted me. I was not trying to get the job. I had the job. So I'd already done Scream. And I was in the middle of my second movie for his company. I had to go back and finish that movie after being assaulted. I was playing a 16-year-old. That was really fun. Fun, fun, fun. Oh, my God. How old were you at the time? Probably 23. And you were playing a 16-year-old? Yeah, I was really young. But that messes up your mind, too, when you play younger all the time. As you get older, it, like, screws with your head. And I was sold as a sex symbol. And, you know, sex symbols, they're very, like, it sets up all the other actresses and women hate you because they're jealous. And you're like, this is not my fault. This is how the studio's doing it. It's not who I am. And then... And then also every man thinks they can touch you because how you're marketed. And so it isolates you. And mostly sex symbols throughout history in in Hollywood anyway, they they die. They don't survive this. It breaks your brain. It's I wrote about it in my book and you can go further into it there. And it's it's just really you know, they go crazy and live in the desert or they kill themselves or they get murdered. That's usually how it ends up. And I'm probably like one of the few that survived this. And barely. I can right. I can say I honestly barely survived this. But when you were in that process of being blacklisted after Harvey Weinstein assaulted you and you were stuck in that place where you couldn't choose your own roles, you couldn't really align with anyone. I had without. to take what I could get. Right, exactly. So you had to take because, what Yeah, well what do you do if you're what yeah. do you do if you're already famous or really well known? You're already on magazine covers, mm-hmm. you're already on this, but then you're blacklisted. What other you can't walk in like, you know what, I'm gonna switch careers and go do this job now. You're stuck. I was stuck. And he really was the person, because again, I'm not, I wasn't in that world and I'm not in that world, but he was the person that if you're blacklisted from his movies, you're blacklisted from the entire Mm -hmm. of Hollywood. There wasn't, it wasn't like there were options of you could just jump ship and go somewhere. No, he was, he was the king. He was the king. Well, I did jump ship. I went to TV, Mm -hmm. which at that time people weren't like, I was one of the first, you know, like movie actors at that time like people were like why is she doing so well in these independent movies that are winning sundance film festival and doing it why is she doing this tv show this is so weird and i was like well it's the only job i could get but also intelligently i joined the show when it was a hit and i knew when it came time to strike and knock him down in the future that i would have media access and global media access because of that show and so this has all been a plan, but I just had to put my nose to the grindstone and work and work and work. And finally, one day I picked my nose up and I was like, oh, now it's time. I'm done. And then when Trump got uh, was started running, Ugh. it was like all of a sudden the people in the media were like, oh, this is what sexual harassment is. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is what racism is. You're like, yeah. And those are like the northern liberals, right? The ones that are supposed to be smarter. You're like, that's, yeah, dummies, this is what we've been talking about this whole time. And it painted it in such a black and white picture that they finally understand it. So I needed him. If Hillary had won, we would not be talking. Do you think so? I know so. She was his biggest supporter. He was her biggest donor. He was, he was protected by the Democratic Party 
like beyond, but he was Hollywood's cult leader. I took away their cult leader. So a lot of them hate me, even if they hated him. And a lot of people did. They hate, they loved to hate him. He was like, they're, they're kind of like alpha male, right? That they all kind of worship. Even right. though they hated he gave him. things still. It was this like father Christmas or daddy uh, complex or whatever you can call it. Hollywood's always loved a cult leader. They, they always have. And he was like that most outsized outlandish personality and, and the biggest bully. And so everyone was scared of him, but they also partially were like, Oh, what can you do for me? And, you know, like I said, this in the interview, cause the memory came back to me for years. I would get like agents from CAA or other gross people sitting next to me and being, Hey, did you get me good Weinstein scripts lately? Like afterwards, you know, for years. No. Right, just to see my reaction, if I would cry, if I would cry. But so did your, did you have a team at that time that you were being managed by yeah. and was helping you? No, you were on your own. No, the, at that time I was managed. Yes. The manager then got a job with Harvey Weinstein for a million dollars a year afterwards for seven years. <gasps> I'm sorry. So that, that was a trade. My mouth is on the floor. That's called human trafficking. Uh, oh, absolutely! Just passing these these robots around. So, so they would. It, it actually took me. A, it took me a long time to realize I was human trafficked. I was like, oh, that's actually human trafficking. Oh, wow, wow, that's that's deep. Yeah, you carried on performing, and then, as you said, you were part of a show that had a cult status as well, right? In the other sense of the meaning. Well, it was. It was really. It was more cult in America, but it was huge worldwide. It was actually bigger worldwide. Oh, than God, it was charmed. Even... Oh God! Yes, yes, I know. I'm not from here. I'm, you know, inside. It was a gigantic show, absolutely huge. I mean, right. we got like Buffy, Charmed. Um, I mean, uh, Ali McBeal. It was like all around the same time when it was just like these yeah. very strong women. Fucking... I think Ali McBeal and Buffy a little were bit before Charmed. Earlier. But it was. It was very strong women. It was a bit earlier, yeah, because I remember watching Ally McBeal. So if I was watching Ally McBeal, I wouldn't have been working because I couldn't watch anything when I worked because it was 12 to 17 hours a day, every day, for five years, pretty much, except so, for oh Sunday and half of Saturday. So what did you do? How did you make sure that that performance side, because clearly acting for you had a different, you utilized a different part yeah. of your brain than you're doing for your writing in your book, for your writing, for your music. It didn't, it didn't use, it, yeah, that was the problem. It didn't use my brain. I felt like my brain was literally turning to mush because I, it, it doesn't require problem solving. It doesn't require thought. It does require discipline. It requires emotion and it requires stamina. Um, and uh, all of those things and it requires professionalism and it requires hard, hard work, but um, it wasn't fun for me. They, that joy got taken. If there was joy around performing, I don't know it. I don't remember it. Um, but it's, it's also for me, I love the totality of filmmaking. I don't love, I didn't love acting, um, but there are, I was discovered. So I was never like, yay, I have to be an actor. I was discovered standing on a street corner and two weeks later, I was starring in a Greg Araki movie that went to Sundance. And then I wound up on the cover of an interview and GQ and blah, blah, blah. And I'd never, I'd like done one line in a movie five years before and thought it was dumb. So I didn't pursue it. Um, but they pursued me in the end. And I was like, okay, let's just do this and get it over with. Because when I was six, I knew I'd be famous, but I always knew it wasn't a big deal. Like I've always known what my life was going to be. Really? It was always in the cards. Always. You just didn't always. know what it was going and to be for. At the I, time. I, I didn't know what the big thing was, but I knew that, that Hollywood was not the big thing. That was like, that was like what people think of as the, like the amazing grand design of a great life. Wow, you get to do that, you know? And um, from the outside, that might be the perception. For me, I had a life 
that uniquely prepared me for quarantining because I hid inside my house when I was uncharmed. You know, it's not normal to have to pay people $6,000 a month to keep people away from you so you can just hide in your house and not get murdered or raped because that's what they tell you is going to happen to you. And also if I would go outside, I would get, you know, it was like, it was impossible. TV fame, you're in people's bedrooms all over the world and they just, their eyes kind of dilate when they would see you in person and just kind of go crazy and like, I was chased out of the Vatican by a horde of German tourists once, and they pulled out a chunk of my hair. Like, and I'm small. I'm only 5'4", so these, all these men and people surround you and women, and they're pushing at you and grabbing your clothes. And So I just stayed in my house for all those years. And that's why one of the tracks on my album is called Lonely, Lonely House. house. Mm-hmm. That was me. And, so and I think that resonates Lonely with house. a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it's not anymore. I've, not anymore, because I've really found... You know, the people that I have communication with, the people that I talk to, um, which is a lot of people online, right? But I'll pick someone with like 43 followers and they said something really cool and interesting. So then we develop an online relationship and I I still talk to them and I've done that for years, right? And it's much more about the people. Like I consider myself a worker amongst workers. I do not consider myself an elite or a fancy person or anything like that. And in fact, those people were the most treacherous to me. So I don't trust them. I don't feel comfortable around them. Um, and that's not like, I always get a lot of questions from journalists that are like, who are the people in Hollywood who supported you? I'm like, are you on crack? You didn't feel any What would support. make you think they'd be brave enough? Right. right. No, no. But look what you just said. You just said feel. That's a very woman thing to do. Feel. No, no, no. It wasn't a feeling. It was a fact. It happened. There was no support, but it's not a feeling. And women, very traditionally, or people will say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm like, yo, it rained yesterday. I didn't have feelings about the rain. It just rained. It was a fact. And that's something that women need to unpack. Right. But the emotionality in it is because that person's trying to connect with whatever humanism is inside because it's unbelievable what you've gone through. You know, you can some like reading your book, and I hope that this doesn't come off in any certain way, but I do mean it genuinely. Hearing the stories versus reading the book and then listening to the album, I, I do feel like it's all this beautiful like, little world that you've created. It's so revealing and telling in comparison to so many others who've potentially experienced what you have but are still quiet about it. So it's, a, it's again, you, you are coming out in this force. I know I'm unusual. Well, it's it's not unusual because I feel like in my circle it feels very you feel very real and like everything that you are saying is very much what is what happens is what happens. Which is why I did that and came forward and did all this because I was like, yo, if they're doing this to me and I'm God. considered like from the outside a fancy person that nobody would mess mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. but they they are. Then what are they doing to the cashier at McDonald's? But this is the whole thing. You think the Hollywood is crazy. Look at the music industry. I mean, the music industry in terms of predatory acts and misogyny. misogyny it's not as bad as Hollywood. It's, not as bad as Hollywood. It, it can't be essentially, but the stories. It's not that, good. It's not, it's not good. Not it's not good at all. No, it's not good. And I don't think it's that. not good at all. I think it's that treacherous and it's sick. And it hasn't had its own Me Too movement yet. You know, it's only just started. No, because I- I think it's because a lot more music people other than the famous people that are in the front of on camera, you know, um, singing and doing all that. Most people don't really know who's behind the scenes. They kind of operate in more secrecy in a weird way. 
But do I think that there's a rapist as prolific as Harvey Weinstein who's probably like raped over 4,000 women in his raping career? His movies were a front for his rape factories, which he had all over the world. Wherever he did movies, he had a whole network and system set up to bring him victims, to bring to human traffic girls. Um, So do I think there's one like that there? No. Do I think they're just, you know, your average everyday abuser, power abuser and rapist? Sure. Absolutely. I feel like so many industries, it, it, you find it, you know, you were speaking about how some of the proceeds for Planet Nine are going towards women who are who have experienced domestic violence. I mean, that's especially during quarantine. That is the one of the biggest it's a nightmare. Uh, it's a nightmare. And that's why in South Africa, what they've done is they've banned alcohol. You in the lockdown that oh, they're currently brilliant. experiencing, they have banned alcohol and cigarettes because domestic violence and rape figures there are astronomical. The country and yeah. the government stood behind the woman and the victims and said, that's it. No alcohol is sold. No cigarettes are sold. Can you imagine that's if brilliant. they did that? That's a brilliant move. I mean, can you imagine if they People did that? People would freak out. <laughs> They're freaking out because they have to wear a mask to the grocery <laughs> store in America. Let it, like if you took away their alcohol, like they'd they minds. And it sucks because, oh, yeah, abusers are triggered by being powerless. And this is a very, very powerless situation. And it's not just, you know, I was doing um, an interview with someone in the UK and they said even calls to men's hotlines for domestic violence there have risen 17%. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I don't know. And I think that might be might be it might be homosexual relationships. It might be. I'm not sure what the demographic is within there. If it's women hitting them or or their partners doing it. I'm not really sure. But it's terrible. And the women's have gone up by 85 percent of the calls in the UK. And so you're trapped and you're trapped. And I've been in that situation, you know, both when I was young and then when I was older. And the thing is, we call it domestic violence. I wish we'd come up with, I don't know what a better name is, but domestic domestic violence sounds like something quiet behind the doors. Like we call things domestic cats, domestic Mm -hmm. dogs, like domestic dip, domestic violence. It's It's contained. Not a cutesy thing. It's Mm. terrorism. It's Mm. terrorism. And it's, it's power abuse. It's, it's literally emotional and financial terrorism and physical mm-hmm. terrorism. Like it's, it's really gnarly. And Joe Biden, the creep that's running for president in America, mm-hmm. or, you know, in America, the creep that was vice president, he's like, he's touting his like, I passed the Violence Against Women Act. I'm like, well, that's funny because only 1% of reported rapes have convictions. So you're doing a great job. And women get shot and killed every day. They're more than any other group, more than any other group. And nobody talks about it because it's just a woman. It doesn't matter. They're disposable, you know? And so when he's like violence against women, I'm like, I've seen no uh, great, um, you know, solution to this that you come up with. You might've passed an act, but in terms of actual like statistics and results, nothing So do better. Also don't be the president because you're, you know, I think you're probably a rapist. You creep. And that's what I'll say on that. There's also tokenizing certain things, right? I think that when you did speak up, uh, quote unquote, on certain issues, again, that other people knew about and just didn't want to say anything about it, you brought in your personal experience that spanned your entire career. So when other people might have been supported when they were kids, being a child star or an actress or whomever, or dating any high profile men, they were... Maybe some of them weren't protected, but I feel like everything you've ever gone through has been, you've shown yourself. There's not been any sense of hiding. And also standing idly like those agents that whispered to you in public about Harvey Weinstein scripts and things like that. Oh, they didn't whisper. They would say it quite out loud. Well, 
I mean, God, either way, it's fucking devastating. And them doing that. So other people, if they were saying it out loud, other people heard it, right? So it's the whole thing. They would laugh. If you see something and you don't say anything, I, you are you are absolutely, and this is, I feel very, very strongly about this. I feel very this. strongly about that. If you don't say anything, you are you are as to blame. It doesn't matter if you've committed any sort of crime. If you do not say something, it is within your right and duty. They don't even know what they're afraid of. It's just fear. It's not even their own life. I don't think it even gets that far unless it's a really crazy situation. It's more like, ah, oh, someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. Someone else will do this. I don't want to rock it, but what if they yell at me? Yeah, what if they yell at you? Can you survive it? Yes, you can. Most likely you can survive this situation, so step up. I always say, like, you know, Harvey Weinstein is sick in the head. He's a psychopath. He'll never realize, and he doesn't care to realize what he's done. But what about all the other people, the machine and the complicity machine, even the Hillary Clintons, all these people that supported him, you know, that, like, and there was a, you know, a new, and that's the complicity machine. And what they do, they're aiding and abetting criminals. So, like, if I was standing next to you and you murdered someone, Lior, and I didn't do anything and I just walked away, I would be found in the court of law as guilty as you. Mm-hmm. And that's the law. And, but it's not the law for this kind of stuff. And it really should be. And it's also just personally, like, step up for other people. It's not about you, for fuck's sake. For once, it's not about you and your fear. It's about doing what's right. Is it scary to do the right thing? Sure. Do you sit and watch a horror movie so you can be scared? Yes. So I think you can handle it. Mm. But I also feel like just thinking back to the album, is the song then Now You're Here, is that about you? Like, are you singing to yourself when you say, like, I can't remember the exact thing, like, tell me where it hurts, I'll make it right? Or are you that person speaking? No, that's for people. Right. I'm speaking to the people. And and it's kind of like the first song on the album, which I can't pronounce because it's Latin and it's too hard for my mouth. Um, I love that I have a song that I can't oh, no, pronounce. Come on, let's of, do it. We no. have to try. Let's do no, it. No, I think it's C A N E S. The second word is V. V is in victory. E N A T I C I. And I think it's kind of Veneticii. Veneticii. But it's kind. It's just still very. It's not a pleasant mouthful. But anyway, what does it mean? That song. It's a nebula galaxy. It's not a galaxy. It's a cluster of stars. And um, everything on this on Planet Nine is very much about space and yes. the stars and all that. But so the first track is like I say in it, like, what's so good? Why do you stay for fear, for love, for commonplace? And that song is to get people off Earth in their minds. Like, OK, now you've and it, it's kind of like it. And then Now You're Here is the third song on the album. And it's like, that's like, now you've made the transition mentally and spiritually and emotionally to getting on your, on this astral journey, like for 38 minutes. Now, now you're here. Now you're gone. That's all we are. Now you're here. Now you're gone. You may as well live the biggest life you can. And, you know, tell me where it hurts. I'll make it right. I sing that. And it's like, I just, what I like to try to do, Cyrene, my second song, which is a banger, um, and that was with my favorite Daft Punk producer who produced it in this duo called Punishment outside of Paris. And um, that one, those, those lyrics, those ones are very specifically for rape survivors. But it's for everybody who survived trauma, but it's hidden in this, like, beat that I want remixed for Ibiza. You know what I mean? And lyrics get into our heads whether we know it or not. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, I never listened to lyrics. I'm like, well, they're in your head anyway. Um, yeah, it's definitely your brain is right. Your brain is, is is trying to figure it out and quantify what's happening. Right. And then Green Gold, which is um, Blade Runner dialogue that I started with from the movie Blade Runner, the original, 
and then that one, um, you know, it all, it's all very thought out and conceived and nothing is an accident. And I only have eight songs on the album and that's because I say the ninth song is for the listener to make, whether it's a song or a piece of visual art or like a video art or whatever you make, but I want planet nine to, and it has been people have been posting amazing videos, like putting colored lights in the showers and doing like, like modern dance routines to it, or just feeling their body while they listen and people are getting it. And that's the ninth song. The ninth song is not for me. It's for them. It's for anybody who wants to create based on what they've heard and what they've been inspired to. Because for me, creativity and art, you know, did it cost money to make this album? Yes. But I also shot all the visuals for it. Um, and I did that for no money and you can make art with what you have you can, and anybody can, you know, I met so many people when I was in Hollywood that literally waved their hands at me. Like I had a disease that was catching and they'd be like, I'm not on the creative side. And I would just say, how old were you when that got stolen? How sad? Because if I was a lawyer, I'd be a creative lawyer. I'd be a creative accountant. I'd be a creative anything, but they tell people, people equate, especially in America, creativity only with if you're a painter, musician, photographer, something like that. Sure. Like if you have it on your business card that you're a creative, then you're a creative. But it doesn't, I don't think it's like that. I don't think it works that way. Obviously, you have a very high profile musical legend in your past and in your personal life, which like, you know, mm -hmm. Marilyn and uh, talking about like the fans that he's had in his life. And no, they hated, they hated me. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, but again... Oh, those girls back then hated <laughs> me, and I was like, girl, don't even do that, come on. But how did you ever meet him or get into that world? Like, what was, how part of music, like, what was well, your connection he to was, the music he, he world? he came to my world, right? Well, I had asked my father when I was, like, 10, I was like, Dad, can I sing? And he said no. So I didn't open my mouth again. But I would sing to myself without realizing it. I would do that a lot. And then uh, I met Manson. I was late for a screening of a Harmony Corinne movie, this uh, really good indie director. And I knocked on the door, and it was Manson that opened it. And I'd already heard, like, through the grapevine, I was actually getting a foot massage at an S&M restaurant, which is so disgusting. I was like, what a weird restaurant. They give you food and, like, massage your feet at the same time. This is totally weird. And the guy massaging my feet was like, my friend Marilyn Manson has a crush on you. And all I'd ever seen of him, I was like, isn't he the really ugly guy? Because I'd, I'd done like five movies, like when it, all his like stuff broke really big. And I wasn't kind of in pop culture world. So I wasn't really that aware of him um, other than he looked kind of scary, um, you know, and that was his thing. And then when I met him, he was just him with, you know, minimal makeup on. And, and I thought, uh, and we just clicked from the very, and I just looked at him and I said, Hey, I hear you have a crush on me. And we were together for three and a half years after that. Um, and then he heard, he heard me singing around the house and he put a microphone in front of me and I was so scared of it. I backed up like three feet, like the microphone was really, really scary to me. And eventually, obviously I made peace with it. And then at one point I tried to make an album with this German producer, but being German, he stripped everything human out of my voice and made me sound like this is robot. And I got really disheartened and just gave up for a long time. And then I was shooting because I do a lot of photography. I was uh, shooting this, this French electronic duo, um, the ones I referenced called Punishment. And I heard their music and there was no vocals on it. And I was like, whoa. And they're like, yes, we just made that. We don't have a singer on it. And I'm like, so basically I, I bought uh, three tracks from them, three tracks from another, but I could have control over it. And I didn't want to sing with a band. I didn't want to do that because I've seen bands, they always have issues. And I'm like, no, I don't want anybody else having input into my work. It's not, that's not how it's supposed to be for this, for this one specifically, this one had to be with brave and with this, 
like I wrote every word of Brave. I worked really hard. And a lot of people are like, oh, you had a ghostwriter. I'm like, sit down. No, I would never. Yeah, I'm going to do a book that's all about my own voice, but have someone else write it. Yeah. No, I, I but in interpreting that, me. Right. But in that entire world with Manson, did you experience any concerts? Like, did you get to see his shows? Like how? In, his, in, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I went to so many shows. He was on the Mechanical Animals tour when I was oh, with him. And a lot of that album was, was about me. Like, I am Coma White. That's actually an autobiographical story for me. Like, I lived in the Miracle Mile. I stood on the overpass. Everything, you know, that whole song is, is me and Speed of Pain. Um, but so I went to the most, he put on incredible shows and they were huge things. I remember being at big day out festival in Australia and standing on the side of the stage, watching him and it's 350,000 people in the audience. That was like, and it was like a human wave that just went on and on and on. And I'd never seen that many people like at a concert. And, um, and they were all singing the lyrics to Coma White, which is my story. And, but they thought it was his story. And it was a very discombobulating experience, but also really cool and weird. But, um, yeah, I just, and, I, and I've never wanted to be a performer on stage, uh, like, um, as a singer. I've just never really wanted to do that. I really don't like being stared at, to tell you the truth. Because um, I, I want to stare back. I'm very interested in who's in front of me. And I'm like, can I just stare at you now for a while? Uh, but I can't because you have to perform, so that's mm-hmm. not going to work. Um, but he was very encouraging with me, uh, you know, getting to the microphone and slowly, slowly I got there. And then I sang on the Planet Terror soundtrack, a Robert Rodriguez movie I did. And um, I sang like a Patsy Cline song. So I love Patsy Cline. And um, it's just and then I was like, no, it's time for me to do this work. And when I heard that the, the Paris musicians music, I was like, this, this is it. This is time. And it's time now. And I worked around the clock because I needed a lot of stuff ready for after the Weinstein stuff to release. Otherwise, I'd be dead in the water. I would have no job, no money, no anything. Not that you make money off music, by the way. You're right. you don't. I'll never recoup what I spent on the record. But I, it, what, it was a compulsion. I had to make it. And it's kind of my gift to people for going through the really hard stuff of the last three years. Because it triggered a lot of people. It wasn't just about me. This triggered people worldwide. Yeah. To, like think of boys, girls, trans, this. Everybody's got these like stories that they have to unpack. And a lot of them push it down and it became to a point where a lot of them couldn't push it down anymore and they had to go through it and like work through it. But, and I get so many messages from people that were like, it was such a hard time for them. And it was a really hard time for me. I had to see my rapist face every day, everywhere for like three years straight, even though I had to see it like the same way before, but like on steroids at that point. Um, but I think collectively we've come through something. Now I wanted people to be like, look, we're all walking around with trauma. That means we have a wound on our legs or our heart and you're just pulling your shirt down and pretending it doesn't matter. And you're walking along, but you've got this deep, deep wound. So if everyone's walking around like this, then there's a problem and we're a really sick society. So if you can get people just a bit better, even the ones like, like even gross redneck people or whoever that like yell at me online or say gross things, I'm like, the fact that you're even having to think about this to yell at me about it is 10% better than you probably were. And then you say you sing on Green Gold on the track on Planet Nine. You say something like, I've seen things that you people can't imagine. And is that, are you referring to your stories and your pain points, your life in that? It's twofold. One, um, Blade Runner. My father died 10 years ago. He was an incredible artist. And Blade Runner was his favorite movie. And that score, thank you, that score was his favorite score by 
by a band named Tangerine Dream that did it, and it's it's it holds up. And there's an actor in Blade Runner, and he's a he plays like kind of an android replicant thing. And as he's dying, he says he wrote the lines himself. This actor Rutger Hauer is a German actor, and he says, um, "I've seen things you people can't imagine: attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark, and all these moments would be lost in time like tears and rain. Time to die." So I, it was an homage to my father. I played that album while he was dying in the hospital on loop. And it was an homage to my father, but also like, yeah, I have seen things you people can't imagine. Like, beyond. Some people have really oversized life. <laughs> right. No, I mean... Some pe- I'm like, I'm like, my extra has an extra. Right. <laughs> yeah. Your extra has hired 500 other extras and they're all sitting just waiting in the wings. I know. I'm like, no. Do- <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. Yeah. And they're always like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm like, I don't, you know, <laughs> ah, I think I'm okay now, but I'm just chill. <laughs> right, right. You got it on your back. But when, when obviously looking at your performance and you say, you saying that you wouldn't ever perform what are the memories then? Because I feel like we do tend to, with stories like this, because of the impact of them, we tend to focus on the terrible things that have happened. But was there any yeah, point in you, But when was what was there ever any point within your life, even just experiencing those that music's world initially? What were the good parts about that process? Yeah, there were a lot of good parts. You know? I'm gonna write. Yeah, I'm gonna write a second book, and it's gonna be my adventures because yeah. in between all the crap, I've had a lot of adventures. They just didn't happen to be in Hollywood. Um, it was like I lived as soon as I got out of there, and I would travel. If, if I wasn't working, I was just not there. I was like, it's. it's horrible but the moments with acting like there's times I didn't know I didn't have any approach to acting because I never went to an acting class I went to one after I did my first movie and I was like oh my god these actors are terrifying I can't be around these people so then I hid from them um and it was but the moment they would say action I would leave my body because I used to I found a book on astral projection when I was 11 I would practice it so I would just use that I would leave my body let something else take over and they say cut and sometimes you're so in this moment, you're so in the scene, you literally, they say cut and you get walk, rocketed back in your body and you were gone. Like you're just gone. Whoever like Rose is was not there. This other channel, like, and that's a great moment in acting. And that is what a lot of people get really addicted to that feeling. That's a great feeling for actors if they can do that and summon that. Um, for me, it wasn't enough to make up for the other stuff. Manson was like, you know, and, and to be fair, he turned into a monster after I broke up with him. He became evil to me for years. But when I was with him, he was not like that. Uh, I had a blast with him. And it was my first relationship after being sexually assaulted. And you know what happens afterwards is you just want to go back to being who you were before. And I was exhausted. I'd been working. I've been, you know, I was homeless at 13. I had my first job at 14. And I've been working to support myself ever since I've been on my own since 15 and um, I was tired and I just wanted to run away with the crazy circus. So I did. And I had a blast until sometimes the circus has to stop. You're like, okay, the circus is now, it, it eventually gets old, right? The circus. Um, so, but I had a blast. I had so many great times. That was the only time being famous was fun. I would say. Um, because also it was more about his fame and I could, it was more about, it was more about protecting him. And I didn't have to focus on myself very much because he was always getting death threats. And so it was like bomb threats and like, like that. So it was always more like me fighting for him, fighting against the bad guys for him. So I, I didn't have to deal with myself. 
But I also just had a lot of great adventures. So was there anyone else in the music industry that you got to get to know through Mm-mm. that world? No. You, did you keep yourself no. completely? No. I mean, you went to the, the, there's that famous, and I know you wrote about it in your book, the most amazing dress, the, the neck mm-hmm. dress. I love disrupting status quo. And as much as it was the first big public appearance in that movie, the MTV Music Awards was massive back then. That was like the biggest red carpet besides the Oscars, right? Mm-hmm. And the coolest because everyone dressed way cooler than going to the Oscars. Right. But I knew I was going and it was my first public appearance after being assaulted and I was so like mad about being reduced to a body and at that point I'd been on red carpets enough to realize that they say like turn your head like when you're walking away so they can get the ass shot with your face because that's the money shot that makes twice as much money for them and so I came I came at it like that you remember that Russell Crowe movie Gladiator he comes out at the end and throws his arms and he's like are you not entertained (laughs) I love Gladiator one of my all-time faves that, Everyone me too. shits on me it. Too. But, and when he said movie. that line, yeah. when he said that line, I was like, oh my God, that's what I did. I, that was my motivation. I was like, are you not entertaining? Is this what you want? <laughs> you got it. Here, have fun. And every woman has copied me since, and they, there have been some beautiful looks, but they do it generally to be sexy. Mine was like a power stance. You know, it wasn't hand on hip. It wasn't right. like, it was like literally like, yeah, you fuck with the bull, you get the horns. Here you go. Have fun. Figure it out. What are you going to do in your newspaper now, motherfucker? Right. I'm giving you cover everything. This? Right. But it was like global slut shaming. Yeah. Afterwards. It was crazy. I'm I didn't, I had never it. dealt with global media um, or going viral globally at that point. And it was like a lot. <laughs> and then every year it still crops up. I love it. Pause the podcast. It's time to step away just momentarily from the conversation. I know you do not want to be broken in half like I'm doing to you right now. But briefly, I just want to share a little something that Engineer Adam and I like to call the live Live show show of the the week. week. Typically, every week we highlight the goings on. And obviously, during the pandemic, we are highlighting this week the Noisy Night Inn, which kicks off Thursday, May 28th, which is tomorrow, if you're listening, on the day that this episode comes out. It will be at 8 p.m. Eastern, which is 7 p.m. Central. <laughs> it's the classic, classic. time zone <laughs> joke. 7 p.m. 7 Central. PM Central. Uh, 5 p.m. PT. P- Pacific Standard. Uh, uh, 8 is... Plus six hours would be London. No, seven plus six hours would be London. Which would and make it uh, 1 a.m. Great. And then 2 a.m. in Cape Town. 2 a.m. in Cape Town. Our favorite places in the world. And those included in the lineup are Phineas, Phoebe Bridges, Faye Webster, and Beach Bunny. To watch, all you need to do is head over to Noisy's YouTube channel, and uh, there you'll be encouraged to also donate for the Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, which is this uh, incredible charity that provides financial assistance to career musicians and industry workers struggling to make ends meet uh, while facing illness, disability, or age-related issues. So that's something that's important every day of the year, let alone in a pandemic. So really would be great to Mm -hmm. have everybody out there contribute. And another new shout-out is the Church of Noise, which is a non-profit community from our friends over at 
Joyful Noise Recordings. It's by their staff and artists. And according to their site and little release that I read today, the purpose of Church of Noise is to financially support adventurous music, specifically music that might not otherwise exist in a purely capitalist system. And it says that you can be a member of the church if you're an atheist or a <laughs> Southern Baptist or anything in between. They are a non-theistic group and their only mission is to fund meaningful music. I mean, there's nothing else. That's a church I can that get is, behind. That is a church I can get behind. As a Jew, that is a church I can get behind. And visit churchofnoise.org for more information. And you can also see where the money goes because just a little tip, 100% of the membership funds benefit adventurous art. And lastly, the most important shout out is to please, please, please read up about Nonseba. The Nonseba Family Counseling Center, which is located in Kailicha, a township just outside of Cape Town, my hometown. Uh, Kailicha is the largest township in the Western Cape Province and has a really high level of overcrowding and a high level of poverty. For years, unemployment and crime rates have been really high, particularly around violence against women and violence against children, with little to no services and support for the victims. Nonseba was originally founded in 2002 by a local resident and the most wonderful human being who I've had the pleasure of meeting, Nokawe Mankai. She had become deeply distressed by how commonplace child rape was in the township and offered a shelter in her own small brick house. Later, it was supported by my dear friend who has passed, Ashley Kaimovitz, who filmed, shot, scripted, directed a documentary in September of 2002. And it is called Utando La Botwana, which is for the love of our children. If you want to see it, reach out. I'll also put the link. It is the most wonderful haven and home. And please head to thecircle.ngo slash project slash nonceba, which is N-O-N-C-E-B-A, Woman Shelter. I'll put the link in the information to this very podcast. Your donation goes directly to the center. It is a shelter for women who have survived domestic violence or have been victims of human trafficking. And most women in the shelter are also HIV positive or struggling to access just basic health care and basic human rights and have received limited education and training. And please donate. I will put the links in for you. It will take you two minutes of your time and every single dollar counts. Thank you. So let us return to this week's interview. Back to me and Rose chatting about everything. Enjoy! Well, what it really is about is it's just all the people that don't have voices that feel like they don't have a voice. But they do. They matter. They count. Everybody does. And everybody can stand for themselves, you know. And I was talking about how poor people right now, like, if they were just getting out of the cycle of poverty, they're falling back in. And they can't get out. And there's, there's, and, and everybody is so scared right now. And, and rightfully so. It's a, it's a tragic, tragic time. If you can be alive, you're going to have hardships. If you're dead, Jesus, you know what I mean? you paid the ultimate sacrifice for this weirdness. And I just want to give people some comfort with art because I know it works. And if they give it a chance, even if it seems strange to them or I seem strange and different, I guarantee you don't have to like me, but just listen, 
because it might work. And it might really actually give you 38 minutes of solace and respite and freedom and the feeling that you two can be on a great alternative planet because this one's scary and sad right now. I'm happy the planet's healing. It needs to. It needed to give people a time out. It's just at a great personal cost to many people. It's just for the people. I make art for the people. I care about the people. I care about people that other people don't seem to care about. Everyone has a story and I just feel like there's so much of yours has resonated and I'm just so, I just love that you are open enough to do this and you show that bravery and that courage despite of everyone telling you not to. And you know what else I show? What? I show love. Yeah. I think I show love. I think And you people do. don't want to see that. But I do this out of love because I know people are hurt and I know that who's hurting them. And I know that if, you know, we've all worked at that place with the one creepy person or the bad woman or the evil power abuser. So just take them out and let good people come in. That's the only way it's going to work. Mm -hmm. I know. I hear you. I'm with you. And I also feel very passionate about rape and domestic violence causes. And uh, one of my bestest friends ever she died in a car accident, a drunk driver hit her when she was 18 and uh, directed a documentary at a rape crisis center in South Africa. And so I'm going to shout Before she was killed at, at that young? That young. She was absolutely, wow. she did a documentary about the rape crisis in South oh, Africa God. when she was 16. She did a full documentary. And she died. She died. <laughs> Why is it always the good ones? Like, like, always yo, like ones. Dick Cheney. Is, I remember when my dad died and this is a weird story to tell, but when I had to pull the plug or unplug him, mm -hmm. it was like the first time I had no thoughts in my head. And then all of a sudden this thought scroll went by and it was like, Dick Cheney is still alive. And I oh flew, God. I just got so angry. Cause I was like, it's like your friend. You're like, but what, Why what? <sighs> But the good thing about all of this is that what came out of it is a is a rape crisis center called Nonceba, uh, mm -hmm. N O N C E B A, and I, I'll send you the details. But I'll definitely oh, mention it along with all of the proceeds that you're sending from Bandcamp. I'll also mention Nonceba as well because there's so much right. going on around the world that like artists don't it's need so to. You don't need to be giving anything away. So the fact that you're doing you're doing it is something worth shouting about, you know, and I'm just so grateful that you, thank you. I'm just I really I'm grateful am. to your friend and she has a great legacy. I know. I love her. I think about it all the time, but it was yeah. a very long time ago. This, I mean, I'm now yeah. in mid, my mid thirties. So this is a very long time ago, but you know what she started, you, there's no, the rape, the rape statistics in uh, around the world are horrifying. horrific. They're horrifying. Horrific. So horrifying. we, we got to do everything we got to do. So thank you for, you know, giving some of your yeah. proceeds away. I like, obviously that touches my heart. And I'm just and, happy that even like with a little amount, like a thousand dollars in band camp, I can house four women oh my God. or men or whomever exactly. for a month. Like exactly. that's huge. So if people can right now, I know it's a lot of hardship, but if you people out there can afford $9, it's better sound quality than Spotify. And it goes to a great, great thing. Women's charities worldwide only get 1% of donations. Yeah. And there's a lot of women out there that could be donating and they're not. So 
it's on them too. So what was your first concert that you ever went to? The first show that you ever saw live? When I was 12, I was living in Montreal Mm -hmm. with my dad. And he had this, I had arrived there that night and I read about The Cure whom I loved playing a concert there, you know, and I hadn't, I arrived at night, so I couldn't see the property of the house. I didn't know how big the property was. And, um, I go, dad, can you get me a ticket to go to the cure concert? I have to see Robert Smith in real life. And he's like, if you need the garden, then you can do that. The next morning he hands me a machete and a big sun hat. He says, okay, it's an acre. It's a hectare. And I have to chop it like waist high weeds with my machete money for the ticket. It was like $35. And I took myself when I was 12 by myself to this concert. And it was so fun. And I would never do that now. No way. I don't really remember the cure playing, but I remember all the little French goths around me fainting and fainting. (laughs) It was hilarious. So that was my first concert. Oh man, I love it. I love the cure. They played like I covered them uh, at a festival. I also take photos. I covered them at a festival in Norway a few months ago and I, they played a three hour set. It Whoa. was fucking mind blowing. And it was just funny, like all the goths making Robert Smith <laughs> making them faint. It was hilarious. And I earned that ticket. I earned that ticket you with blood, did. sweat, and tears. You Literally, did. I cut myself with a machete. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, thanks, Dad. You chose to release the album now for the listeners to have it all now. People are stuck at home. How does it then feel for you to have that context of Planet Nine out in the world right now? It feels really beautiful, you know, um, and that people are connecting to it. The messages I'm getting on Instagram and Twitter about it, you know, are just people are like, I have so much anxiety and so much trauma. And this this is the only thing that soothed me. I did an interview with someone yesterday and um, it was really tragic. Like he had, his wife died giving birth and the baby died. Terrible stuff. Ter- last year, like hor- horrific. And he told me that Planet Nine, he's been listening to it nonstop and that it's the only thing like that and one other album that has brought him solace. And and he said and he loves that it's a concept album. He's like, people don't do that anymore. It's all about singles and just random things thrown together. And, you know, a concept album is very Bowie. That's very there's so many people that did, have done concept albums, but they don't do them that often anymore because, you know, Spotify and everything, everyone's just used to singles. But that's, you know, my work. Planet Nine is definitely, you can skip around the songs afterwards after you find your favorites, but it really is meant to go on a complete journey. It is an art. And I promise that by the end, the last song is called We Are Free, and that's how people feel at the end. And it's lovely. I love that the record comes with a prescription and an instructions for use because it really does feel healing and almost medicinal for you and for the listeners. So why was it important for you to present it within that frame? to have those instructions? Uh, It was important to me to do that one, because that's, I know the optimal experience, just closing your eyes, headphones, be somewhere comfortable with the lights off, you know, something like that. And then, or driving at night, there's like a whole way you can do this, but, um, it was important that it not be misunderstood, that it's mind medicine, that I'm not trying to be a pop star, that I'm not doing anything other than I made something really beautiful to help myself. And here's my gift to the world for going through all that hard crap with me. I appreciate it. What do you turn to music for? You know, how many times when you were little and you're listening to a song and you're like, oh my God, how do they know my life? They wrote those lyrics for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and everybody I think has had that. You're like, whoa. And uh 
But, and I don't know if I wrote these lyrics for others, but I did write them for others, you know, and I think it's very relatable. And I think everyone has that lonely house inside of them. You know what I mean? Everyone's felt like misunderstood and, and I've just, people were just paid off to make people misunderstand me. Right. But this, like for me, like when I wrote Brave, I listened to a band, an old band called the Cocktail Twins. Oh, and that was like, amazing. they're so amazing. It holds up. It's oh. like, I wanted, to make, I wanted to make an album that stood outside of time like theirs. Theirs is not like, oh, it's from this era or it sounds like the sounds from that period. It's very much its own thing. And so, I, and also with Cocktail Twins, you can't, the lyrics aren't discernible, so it's perfect to write to, and the music has energy, but also, and it's not too morose or anything like that. And so I've always turned to that. There's a band called Dead Can Dance that there's a, an album called Host of the Seraphim that is just lovely music. Um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, and music does. You know, I remember being 13 and getting Sinead O'Connor's The Lion and the Cobra album, and there's a, a song in there called Jackie, and she's like, you know, hell, I was a 13 year old. I had, she's, she's singing about her husband that go like, I've been searching all these years waiting for my man to reappear. You know, she's looking for him on the ocean, on the, on the shores sail of the ocean. The he, he yeah, sailed the seas for a hundred years, yeah. leaving me alone. Uh, right. Uh, and, and she wails on that. Mm. And, and I just thought like, that's, this is how we can, this is, you know, when people ask me a lot, they're like, what instrument do you play? And I'm like, my voice, I use it in a very different way. I, I use my voice when I was acting, I changed my voice for every role I did. You know, um, that was very much a part of how I approach things. But also with this, it's my real voice. And I don't, my full singing voice is not on display in this album. That's not what it's for. This is very much an art piece and mind medicine. You know, do you know New Kids on the Block? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I was, I did a movie with Donnie Wahlberg, who was, you know, yes. one of the main kids and he's just the loveliest human. I did a movie with him like 16 years ago. And so I did his, he has a podcast uh, with Jenny McCarthy, his, his partner. And, um, he, Donnie's not, you know, I don't know what he listens to, but I don't think it's normally like planet nine kind of music. So Jenny played it for him and she said, and he said, he just sank into the couch and went on a totally different, and he came out and he said, Rose, this is mind medicine. And, and that's like the perfect description. It's like for your soul. And I think that there's so much art out there right now where there is this agenda to it. People do have the idea, you know, set in stone. But I think, as you mentioned, there's a different reason for this to be coming out right now and for people to be taking it as art as well i think it, we don't often get the opportunity just to sink into music or you know really let go it's there's always some yeah. sort of like we either got to rush out the door or i don't know spotify's right. playing something next so you've also right. which is why i love that mind medicine and i also love how you mentioned Sinead because you choose the word sail for sirene that song and yeah. you make it this really palpable physical motion so and I quite like it because we were you were talking about Jackie now the song so how did you yeah. approach that intersection of choosing the right words to fit the right emotion and making sure that just like you're writing for your book making sure that that music was really that you were being as honest and truthful in your music as well as you know the rest of your life <laughs> 
Well, one, I think it's almost impossible for, I mean, everyone tells white lies. I presume I do too. Like, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I got stuck in traffic or some sure. stupid thing like that. But as far as like bigger things, I just don't lie. Like, and I think I wonder if that's because English is my third language. And when you translate, um, you know, if you're in another country and you can speak French, but not that great, mm. uh, and someone says something to you in French, you have to translate it. If you're speaking English into your head in English, and then you respond. So are you going to have time to craft a lie? Usually not. Mm. You just kind of respond with, Oh, this is what this is. And also I've always been like, why is the world gaslighting us and telling us the sky is like gray or purple? The sky's blue today. Like, stop telling me what it is. Stop gaslighting all of us. Stop lying to us. And, you know, also, I didn't have the music out there. I had music that I loved, but I didn't. Like, I drive my car, or when I was in L.A., I have a car that I race um, on a track at night. And I needed music also, like, to match. I was going 120, 130 miles an hour in my car, and I'm like, what music can give me that feeling. I feel like I'm about a foot off the ground right now and just sailing through air, like the lyric in the song and Sirene, sail through air. And what can I do to make music that makes me feel like I'm about a foot off the planet and I'm oh free? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And, and again, there's all, you are also opening up a conversation, which I love about what it's needed for, right? Like you've shared mm-hmm. your story, like we did in, the, in our ch- earlier chat. You share what you are needing in this world right now, what you've done in this world. And then talking about the album in that regard, what is music for right now when we don't have our normal lives? You know, when we don't have the things that we normally turn to. So hearing that you are using something like where you're almost, you know, emotionally levitating in your racing car. (laughs) Yeah. And then needing that, I think is a, it's also a, a really wonderful way to look at art because then it's boundless as opposed to yeah and there's no time limit on it it's it's very much um it's very much a sound of its own people can be like it kind of sounds like this it kind of sounds like that but it's very much its own thing for five years that I was making it I didn't really listen to any music that could be said to be in that wheelhouse you know I listened to older bands I listened to hip-hop I listened to Patsy Cline I listened to country whatever I was listening to but not like Sigur Ross and not like Bjork and not like I didn't want anything that could affect my brain and how I saw it and the funniest thing was I took a plane to Biarritz um, to find DJ Falcon to get him to um, record with me and they're like okay in two hours you can go into the studio and I had thought on the plane, I fell asleep. And when I got there, I was literally like, Oh my God, I have to record three songs in two days. And I don't have any lyrics. I forgot to write them. I literally just forgot. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) So I have like an hour and a half to write lonely house, Sirene, and we are free. Mm -hmm. And I did it. And I don't know. I just channeled. I have no idea. I was so like, I have no idea. Like, that's why I'm kind of like, this is great because I don't feel almost like it came from me. I was just channeling something and and I think that's the best way and under pressure I work well you know so that was pressure because I was like I this is the biggest producer I've ever worked with and I don't have any lyrics like a dota what so I had to say I mean you you essentially what you do every day like you were speaking earlier you mentioned about like condensing what you say you know for twitter versus instagram and writing lyrics I suppose do you feel like you use the same discipline than you have these last few years by channeling your, like, do you think you could have even written this 
five years ago or 10 years ago? That's a great question, actually. Uh, Let me think about that. You know, uh, you're right. I don't think I could have done it 10 years ago. I was too much still in the cult of Hollywood. I hated it, but I didn't know how to break free. I wrote my book. I literally wrote my way out of Hollywood. Like I had a, like, that's how I shattered the glass ceiling. And I don't think I could have written it. I think I needed to get like, my thirties were lost to incredible loneliness. Like that whole period was just, uh, it was when I was uncharmed and that's when I did planet terror and all these horrible, just horrible stuff was going on. And my dad died, my dogs died, my dog died and my dad died and my other dog died all in a three weeks, three weeks span. And it was just like, fuck my life. This is just the worst. I wanted to wrap the world in black. I was too broken. It wasn't time yet, you know? And, and also I hadn't, art takes time and it takes time to think of how you want to say things and how you want to approach it. And words really matter to me when I was writing my book. It's so many people just go, Oh, just vomit on the page. The editor will clean it up. And I'm like, what? Who likes vomit? It's disgusting. (laughs) Why would I want to vomit on a page? You're much more put together than that. Yeah. (laughs) No, and I'm very, and every word unlocks the next word. And the way I use language, it, it does tend to kind of get into people's heads, Mm -hmm. whether they're annoyed by it or not, because I think it's, again, English is my third language. So a lot of times in romance languages, like Italian, French, Spanish, they put the descriptive after the noun, and we put what the descriptive, the adjective is before the noun. So I kind of flip words too. And I think in English and by utilizing the English language differently, it, it, it really actually gets into people's minds in a way that when you're just reading the way kind of traditional people write, it kind of doesn't. Yeah. And also I just kind of say it straight. Yeah. I think that's also why the spoken word tracks and a lot of the lyrics on here are very much like you are offering a story, but you're also allowing the listener to jump inside of it if they want to. Like there's a sense because of the melody and how how the songs are structured that somebody can dip in and out, whether it's, you know, momentary or not. I mean, it's rise, true. Like by the time you get to rise, that's almost I wanted like, people to have blank space for their right, own mind, exactly. like their own feelings. And I've had messages from people that said, I cried in the middle of your album. It was a release. It wasn't because of like an, an immediate moment of pain. It was just, I, it's like, I wanted to give people space to have thought and space to have emotion, their own, and they can go in and out of it because they do. That's what you do, you know? And it's, and every time you listen to something, you get something out of it. That's different. Like every time you reread a book, you, you're like, whoa, I don't even remember that line or that scene in it, right? Something like that. And, you know, words are words were my savior. I learned how to read at a really high level when I was two and a half in, in four languages, and I've forgotten the other two now. But um, books were how I s- survived my life. They always have been because you can go into other voices, other worlds, other rooms, and you can travel. If you can't travel there, you can travel that way. It's mind travel, right? Because your brain's working at like 500 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, I can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. My producer, um, one of my producers in the band Punishment, he -hmm. calls me Ferrari Ferrari brain because it's (laughs) always going. But there's a there's a speed to it, but you are intentional with what you say. And I think that the words that you have put the you know, the lyrics that you have put to this album are very intentional. I don't think that there is anything in there, at least from my perspective, that shouldn't be in there. You There's 
You're right. I, t- I took great care. And, you know, there's a couple of things in terms of the music that I was like, oh, I wish I'd taken this little chunk of it out and had it just go from here to here. But, you know, everybody has I'm sure every yeah, there's a point where you just have to stop working on it. And also, like I say in my book, it's funny that you call out intentional because I talk about that. You know, I talk about how people making movies and make writing books and making music need to be a lot more intentional. And I talk in my book, I say, I'm honored that you're here with me. My thoughts will rest in your mind. And I take that responsibility seriously because I do, because I've, I've been on the receiving end as we all have. I'm an audience member too. You know, I'm watching every commercial and it's got a woman doing the dishes and laundry. And I'm like, never a man. I'm like, why are you giving like, reinforcing the stereotype. I know plenty of men that do dishes and laundry. Come on. It's just like basic stuff like that. It's just about thinking differently and being better. And it's not that hard. Because you also never know who your audience is and where they're coming from. You never know how far that message can seep in or how indirectly it can seep in either. So Right. This counts. mm. You know, it counts. And looking back at like, I was watching um, this old movie called 16 Candles. I've Loved that movie growing Love up. That I, movie. Yeah. yeah, and Jake was like my dream man, right? I was like, what? And then I watched the movie again, and I'm like, what? What were you Jake, thinking? His character, his it's his character, but it's the writing. He didn't do it. It was like he was. It was written for him. His character, who's like the hot guy at school, sure. he's got the hot girlfriend, and he she gets drunk and he gives her to this nerd to have his first sexual experience with in the back of the car. And she, and she has to be okay with it. And she's like slut shamed through the whole movie just because she has a beautiful body and face. And it's like, it's like, she didn't do anything wrong. She just, it was like, but that's the director and writer's view of what's okay. And that was okay then. And it's not okay. And you watch it now and you're like, Oh my God, that's why I'm proud of a lot of the movies I've been in. Cause most of them, you know, I'm sure not all of them, but like Jawbreaker totally holds up, you know, and, and teen movies from, you know, the 90s don't really hold up. Usually they're really problematic. But because I worked with so many queer directors that I loved and was pushing, you know, like he was the first, I think, openly queer director to direct a movie for Sony. And his name was Darren Stein. And like people were like, oh, you're working with a gay director. Is that going to affect your career? I'm like, what are you talking about? No, it's just it's a better movie than you straight guy can offer me. Hello. Yeah, and it still is. You're right. It's still like, as they say about songs, it still fucking slaps. Like, it's such a great movie. I love that movie. Slaps. So I love that. So much. But so do you feel like, you know, almost like a little rabbit out of a hat? Like, you've seen how the sausage is made. You know the yeah. back end of Hollywood. Do you feel like you have a better relationship towards music and your art because that side of it you're not you're not giving into the bullshit of it you're just creating because you want to and there's no pressure around that absolutely mm. absolutely and i'm not i'm not like a couch that talks and valued as much and i'm not there to make a man's fantasy come true and a man that's like you know and i worked with directors and cinematographers and editors and everyone's like, I knew like even in scream when I leaned over to get the beer bottle out of the fridge that the camera was going to be on my ass. I knew that. So I purposely chose a skirt to wear that had this, um, kind of mosaic design that goes to like a circle and it points right at your 
bum hole. And in the front, <laughs> it points at the other hole. And I was like, oh, is this what you want to see? Ha ha. Yeah. So it was like, a, it was my inside joke. I was always doing stuff like that. And on Charm, sometimes I'd literally be flipping people off like under my hair if I didn't like the other actor. I would be scratching my head, but my <laughs> I had my middle finger up. And people online would be like, I think she just flipped someone off. And I'm like, you're right, I did. Yeah, I did. I did all of it. I did all of it. Also, I think that there's so much of the art world that is so up its own ass because there is it's, sub- it's subjective, right? Like your art is it's or and it's it's impossible to be objective towards art right now, especially when it's hitting us in different places at the moment. You know, it's I everywhere. Agree. Yeah, I agree. And and one of my things with because I've shot all the visuals myself for Planet Nine, and yes. they're, they're really beautiful. I think I hope uh, to me they are, and I worked really hard on them. And it was um my first time turning the camera on myself, I wasn't filmed growing up at all. And I was not photographed really. Uh, there's very few photographs of me that exist before Hollywood, which, you know, I was like 15. So there we go. But, and then it was always every word that came out of my mouth was something a man wrote for me to say and kind of a Hollywood man, not all of them, but most of them, like with a couple exceptions, it was pretty much all like that. And going back to what you were saying about you know, what if the, the sausage could tell you? You're, it's so weird. In my book, I, um, I say that. I say, what if the cigarette could tell you every chemical that's in it and what it's doing to your mind? Yeah. Like I'm the, I'm the product that you were told you needed. And I was sold, like the way I was sold to guys was like basically like, it was like my worth in Hollywood was equal to how much anonymous semen I could raise from an audience and turn them on. It was disgusting. No, I'm, but I'm serious. That's picture, baseline what it is. You just picture particles of semen just lifting yeah. off. It's fucking, this guy actually can... Okay. No, I mean, the, the, tr- the truth is, I know. though, like, that image? from Cyrene to now you're here to Lonely House, you're singing the words that you've written and... Yeah you're making sure that that is something that you you are controlling that narrative, which I know a lot of people talk about in, in a higher sense of like, uh, control your narrative, be powerful, but really is true. Like how else, how else do you want that story out if you can't tell yourself yourself also it's interesting on Cyrene on Cyrene, mm-hmm. um, my producers who don't didn't speak good English, um, they told me they really want the vocal you hear on it. They were like, you have to redo your vocal. We don't like it. And I was like, tough. I like it. And I'm <laughs> producing this album. Suck it. And also you don't even know what I'm saying. And then one of them learned better English and he came back to me like six months ago and he's like, you were right. I'm sorry. But they were like, they were like, no, we want to bring someone in to show you how to do a different melody and a different and sing it differently. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, this is my project. If you don't like it, not my issue. This is, this is very much me and it has to be. And so did my book and so does my activism because I had me stolen for so many years and I was a part of it because I didn't know how else, what other job to do. So this is your job. Your job is being other people. I spent most, the biggest chunk of my life not being me. And frankly, being me is a lot more fun, like than a two dimensional being. Absolutely. And collaboration should only bring you to a place where you're supported and feeling better. And if you have a stronger sense, I think that that's the, you know, I'm so grateful that you just said that because especially in, there's a lot of male producers out there and they're, and um, they get, women get intimidated women and they're like, get okay, very they know better. Exactly. They know better. I'm like, you don't know better. You don't know me. 
You don't also, know what how, I would do. Right. And how do you figure out, like, what does it take? Does it take for you to be dragged through the earth and stepped on to find that confidence to say that? Why can't we just feel confident to, to say that, to stand up and say, you think it's shit? I don't. That's the difference. Because, is that, because women are taught want. to be polite. Yeah. Because girls, they're sent out with politeness as their only defense in the world. So basically you're giving them a pink straight jacket with their hands in handcuffs and being like, go out and defend yourself. Have fun. Mm -hmm. Be polite. Go sit on your uncle's lap. Give him a kiss. No, you don't want to give your uncle a kiss. Mm -hmm. Come on. You know what I mean? Relentless. And it's, it's relentless. And, and men get stuck in their own straight jackets, you know, where they feel like they, their straight jacket says, I have the right to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. I get mansplained and they don't, and they freak out when you say that. I'm like, and I hate that word. It's dumb, but like, it's true. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. I'm like, it's coming out of your mouth. You are a man and you're telling me what to do. And they are like so many people and kind of like why I started activism. I kind of thought like I've endured millions of people's thoughts about me, whether it's online or doing a website devoted to how fat I was, like when I weighed 105 pounds, like just gross stuff. People have had an awful lot of thoughts for me. And I'm like, guess what, society? I have some thoughts for you. Buckle up. (laughs) Come on to Planet Nine. (laughs) You want to play? Let's play. But ultimately, you know, Variety gave me this mixed review, which was really funny. The guy was a knob. He just couldn't he just couldn't get there. It's, it's not for critics. It's not artist subjective. And if you're coming at it from listening to pop albums and thinking that's what you're going to get. And he said, I really was hoping she would rage and scream on this album. Okay, go do it yourself, fucker. If yeah. people like looked at my life and what I've survived and where I've, I mean, I was a street kid at 13 sleeping under churches for fuck's sake. Yeah. I had a therapist once who's like, Rose, everything you do is gravy because with your background, you really should be a crack addicted street walker. Right. I'm like, thank Yes, but she's right. She's like, everything's gravy pretty much because I'm not a crack addicted streetwalker. Go me. But that would be normally the path for a 13 year old girl runaway. It doesn't end well. It does not end well. And by hook or by crook, I like clawed my way out of that situation. And the thing is, is like, I've had so many people still like last week that tell me how I should live and how I should behave in public and how I should talk on Twitter and how I'm like, I have been very effective. Fuck off. Like you haven't been. And I get so many of the the liberal feminists that, um, and they always identify me as a feminist. And I have a problem with that. Like to me, feminists, like I'm not educated in it. I grew up in Hollywood. I didn't, I don't, I guess I could Google it, but I don't really care. Like third wave feminism, whatever. I get it. Ish. But the whole thing is like, I don't know the waves of feminism, but I think a lot of them hate me. And people like, did Gloria Steinem support you? I'm like, no, they're all in the Oprah machine. They're disgusting people. They're all frauds. Not one of them said a single tweet or uh, like a message or anything while I was going through it. Nobody, none of the big feminists. Right. And, uh, and, and so when people slap me with that label, I'm like, back the fuck up. Like I'm free. I'm not part of your system. You cannot judge me by your system. I was not raised in your system. I was not formed by your system. And yet you dare judge me by your system. Step back. I am someone you can't quite comprehend. Not because I'm deeper, not because I'm smarter, but it is because I had a very different life and upbringing. And I've had lived an extremely different life than most people my whole life. And when people try to contextualize me or understand me and digest me by them having grown up in Ohio and living in the same house and going to the same school, I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? Just let it be. Like, I, I can't, I, I don't have Gandhi's life, you know? I can't relate to that. You know, he went, did stuff that other people can't relate to, but you're proud of them for doing it. 
right? But the stakes are high for you. It's like when you are putting something out, as you mentioned, like you ever mentioned, you know, performing at the Fringe Festival as well, which is so well known and doing something like that when you... I had no idea. I'd never heard of it. You never heard of the Edinburgh Fringe? Really? Never heard of it? No. And then I, and then they're like, we're giving you four nights, we're giving you four days, four oh slots. Oh my God. And I'd heard of Fringe, but in relation to bag but in America we don't know what the fringe festival is and, and I and I had to do it honored to do it there and I made people in the audience were crying afterwards when they were coming up to me so they felt something they felt a release but I in when I was standing on that stage I was jealous of the audience I was like I'd rather just be sitting there um and also like I I and I think it's important and what I'm trying to do overall with my art is I find galleries and museums, most especially in America, extremely elitist. You know, in most European countries, museums are free and their culture and art is very intertwined with people's life. It's like for them, it's like an Italian drinking red wine at lunch. It's just this is how it is. And it's not like that in America. And they take you maybe in school once to a field trip to a museum and you see like black you know, black charcoal on white paper. And it's, you know, that's, and that's what you get. And they, and it, it's scary to a lot of people who have not been raised in the art world. I was lucky, you know, I have a, I had an artist's father and my mother's a writer and an artist. Like, you know, it's, I was lucky, but if I hadn't had that background, if I hadn't grown up in Europe, and hadn't had exposure, maybe I would be intimidated and scared of it too, you know? And the thing is, so what I want to do with Planet Nine and the visuals is I'm going to tour it and I'm going to tour it, um, not with me performing, but as an experiential thing where people can lay down, the visuals will be wrapped all around them in a dome and the music will be 360. And, it, and I want to bring it to like the rural South for $5. I want to bring it to inner city. I want to bring it to places where people don't like... I want to bring art out of museums and galleries because art is for the people. And this is what saves and heals. Like Winston Churchill said, um, to paraphrase, if we're not fighting for art, what are we fighting for? What is the Planet Nine that you're fighting for? What is the concept for those that don't have that backstory? What is right. Planet Nine for you? What is that place to go and escape to? Well, it was an imaginary planet I invented when I was 10. Um, I didn't invent a friend. I invented a planet and it would come out of the ceiling at school and encircle me and I would be locked in it. I would be, it would, it would seal under my feet, right? Under the desk mm. in my, in my, in my vision. And I would spend, and so whenever anybody, and this was constantly, people were like freak, ugly, freak, weirdo, blocks. I came from somewhere else and I didn't look like them and I didn't speak their language. And I was like, mm. I don't want to speak your language. You're gross. And you eat orange cheese, get fucked. Um, <laughs> I say that in brave. I'm like, dear America, why is your cheese orange? American cheese, super processed. I mean, there is orange cheese that's kind of natural, but that's in. But this is not that. This is not American that. cheese. No, American not cheese. That. No one realizes what American cheese. No one knows what it is. I don't know it's what nothing. is what it is. It's, it's the absence. <laughs> it's the absence of taste, and it, it tells people in America this is the barometer for cheese. Oh yeah. They have no. Yeah, this is what cheese is. It's chemical. It's and I like the color. I like fluorescent orange, but sure. like still for what inside for your insides to like paint the insides. I mean that's girl. Stuff, it's I've like eaten goopy. so much. I've <laughs> eaten so much Taco Bell and McDonald's. If you are what you eat, I have one leg of cheeseburgers, <laughs> one leg of bean burritos, one arm is Pepsi, and one arm is probably marijuana. I don't know what my head is. Maybe my head's clear. 
I think your head is clear. Or in Planet Nine. Planet Nine. So then six years yeah. late, six years ago, they found Planet Nine. Astronomers. That's what made Pluto not a planet. Mm-hmm. And I had this weird jump in my mind immediately. I was like, I must make music for my planet. Because I used to wonder what sound frequencies would be there and like mm-hmm. how sound, what would sound sound like, mm-hmm. you know, on this planet and what would the colors be like and what, you know, because I'd already seen, you know, at age 11, 2001, a space odyssey. And that that's my favorite special effects. And they didn't do it CGI. It's old fashioned. Mm-hmm. They did it. It's called doing it practically. And they did it with available skills. And it's the most incredible when, when, the astronaut is going into like the next dimension, right? Mm-hmm. And the lights are coming at space. And that's kind of what I used to imagine. And um, so I kind of said about making that, but with sound, I was like, how can I do this? But with sound and, and I, I hope I pulled it off. I think I did. For me. I think you did. I mean, the first, I love science fiction. And I actually weirdly saw 2001 Space Odyssey the other day. There's this like 90-year-old so theater here in Chicago called The Music Box. I don't know if you've been yeah, to it. Yeah, it's great. And it's good. Like they put on 70, they put the movie on 70 millimeter. And oh, it's just, I like, always try to see those. It's unbelievable. And so I was thinking while listening to your album, if there were any science fiction writers or artists who inspired that kind of vision of space, or at least yeah, just the idea. So. Yeah. Ursula K. Uh, Ursula Le Guin. Is it Ursula K. Le Guin? Mm-hmm. Um, her, uh, Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. I loved Kurt Vonnegut. That's not sci-fi really. Um, uh, it's, I mean, he, what? Like he the, has he, sci-fi he, of the mind. He's got sci I mean, where he sends the spaceship full of semen oh, into... It's- yeah. <laughs> into the, into right, the right, right. I was really lucky. I had a first edition Slaughterhouse Five and someone I know knew him and they and he 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 wrote, Dear Rose, I don't know you, but God bless you and then he drew a, a drawing of himself smoking a pipe and signed his name and then he died like six months later and I was like, Oh my god, thank you, thank you because he's given me so much, you know, thank you for your service to the planet. So people that do, um, I don't love sci-fi movies usually too much, um, because they're usually kind of lame because they're coming from really earthbound minds, but not like, but not like 2001. I'm talking more like, I don't know. What was that stupid one with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence? Like that kind of crap. Uh, <laughs> what was that? I'm like, I'm like just because no, wait, this shit in space does not mean that it's sci-fi. You're just dumb. And to to just um you know go back to the art to the album art. You are kind of front and center on this on Planet Nine. It's uh you know it's an illustration of you looking it kind of fan art. Isn't that sweet? That's yeah, amazing. it was just inside. So the album got leaked like two years ago for a week. It was yes. online. I was like, it was finished it wasn't mixed it wasn't mastered and something just I was like god damn it so I took it off and um but in that week some people got it and this this lovely guy named Jesse and I'm blanking on his last name unfortunately but he just sent me this he's like I made this drawing inspired by your songs and I'm like oh my god that's gonna be the cover of my album thank you for that it's so surreal it's such a great version of you as well because I do feel like even even though you played characters that men wrote your whole life, and this is your true oh, chance yeah. like, to be. I was breaking, I was telling the audience with mm. my eyes, I'm here. Do you see me? I'm, right. I'm here. This Must Be the Gig is produced by Adam Kivel. We'd like to thank Dean Berger and Daniel Brater for additional music, as well as the Consequence Podcast Network. Hey! 
you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TMBTGPod. And generally, just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again, and I miss you all week. Consequence Podcast Network.